one of the things that I saw was my aunt um, had to close the, the, the coffin lid and it broke my heart to see her do that. And then afterwards there is a procession where um, family members um, carry the coffin down the road and basically you walk out of a chapel carrying the coffin and everyone on the street stops, all the cars stop, everyone stops and pays respects. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Michelle Knox calls herself a mortal realist. After her father died, she delivered a TED talk in 2017 about the need to discuss death while we're still healthy. Over a million people have watched her wise and witty talk, which has been since translated into 18 languages. Michelle works with Westpac as a project and change professional, focused on helping people adapt to large-scale transformation. A keen traveller, she's lived in Britain and Ireland. Michelle's focus is on sharing her own experiences to help others, using humour and compassion. As she likes to say, talking about death won't kill you. Michelle, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. How was death viewed in your household growing up? Uh, growing up, I grew up in Australia. I grew up on the central coast of New South Wales in a town called Woi Woi. Uh, my father was from Northern Ireland, Belfast, and my mum's Australian. So growing up, my parents did the very best they could to limit our exposure to, to death and funerals. Obviously, they can't limit death. That's not They don't have control of that. But I was very fortunate that in my early years... I either had relatives that had already died quite young in their lives or I was still living. So I didn't lose anyone that was particularly close to me until I was 15. But I do recall my parents going to funerals um, for people that were close to them. And we were, we were, we were never able to do that. We were always mm. left at home. And so I was very disconnected to how they were feeling and why they were upset and a little bit um, removed from that process. And it wasn't until I was 15 that a very close neighbour of mine passed away and it it happened she had a massive heart attack on a Sunday morning and I my parents were actually picking me up from doing a first aid course where I was learning CPR mm. and when we've driven in uh, my sister came running out of uh, my neighbor's house and she was there when it happened and we went in and I, I there was nothing I could do I was 15 and I had just come freshly from this course I already knew that it had happened several minutes ago and her lips were blue and I, I, I believe she had gone and there was nothing that, that I could do to, to bring her back. And I was very fortunate that the, the ambulance officers, when they arrived as well, also talked me through that to yes. say that there was not a lot. And then, of course, after that, it was the first funeral that I went to. And I, mean, I do mention in my TED talk, I remember sitting there, uh, I'd written a poem that I wanted to read I, I was always someone who could get up and, and talk a little bit in public, so that wasn't a problem for me. But I'd never seen a coffin before. I, mm. I didn't know the protocols of, of, of how, how the ceremony would go. And it was my first time hearing a eulogy. And the person who did the eulogy was actually the minister. And I just remember he, he, he got a few little things wrong 
uh, got some names wrong, he got some information wrong. And he, he, he talked about how she liked being a keen knitter. And I just sat there and went, what, who, who wrote this? Like, where, where did you get this from? Yes, she did knit, but knitting was a part of her everyday life. But it, mm. wasn't, it wasn't the thing I would have celebrated about her life. Not at all. She was far more than that. And I, I remember sitting there feeling angry, but not really understanding that, that other people might be feeling that way as well. I put it down a part of my loss, um, loss and grief. And it was after that that I started to realise I've been to a few funerals since then, including my own father's, where I had written a lot of the information, the chronological order of information, and they've still said the wrong facts. They still talked about many, many grandchildren that my father had, or great-grandchildren that he had, and at that point he didn't have any. Mm. So you do sit there on reflection and people come up to you afterwards and say, what was was that story about? I'm like, I don't know. So... I, I feel as a, a lot of my friends feel the same way. Unless you lost someone, and I've since met a lot of people who did lose someone very close to them when they were young, but their experiences are very similar, particularly if they grew up in Australia, where they were detached from a lot of the... or protected. Their families tried to protect them a lot from the ceremony. They may have attended the funeral, but then they didn't participate in a lot of the planning, where I'm pleased to say I think a lot of that's changed now because I think... Uh, kids can actually uh, they have their own way of handling things and they need to be allowed to be part of grieving for someone that they loved and lost and a really good example for me is when when my father passed away two years ago my cousin's daughter was um, was there for us when we had the funeral and she's eight years she was eight years old and she had only recently herself lost two of her grandparents a great-grandparent and a great-uncle in very quick succession And she sat across the table from me and looked me very seriously in the eyes, reached out, held my hand and said, are you okay? And it just really astounded me that this is a kid who, she got it. She understood Mm. what I was going through. She understood the process and she wanted to be part of that. And, and, and she was, and she, you know, she helped out on the, on the day at the funeral, um, handing out the, um, the memorial um, papers when people come in. And I realized that, you know, this is this is a kid who's seen, who's had some experience, some loss, and experienced some grief, but has been allowed to participate on her own level in that as well, which has been very important. So, I don't know if it would have been different had I lost someone very close to me when I was younger. And as I said, it was 15 when I first experienced it myself, but I did start to realise uh, that we're not well prepared. Uh, mm. if we don't talk about it, if we don't include it as part of life. And at some point as adults, we are all going to lose someone. We just are. Do you have a view on how old kids should be for them to attend a funeral, um, if it's somebody close to them, like a grandparent? I think it, it obviously will depend on the, the individuals, but if a child has lost someone that they were close to that was part of their lives, I would involve them. Mm. I really would because they they need that there's part of that ceremony in saying goodbye is for them as well I've recently been to um I've been to far too many funerals recently to be honest but some of the ones I've been to I've seen now where the the kids do a picture they draw a picture for grandma or grandpa Mm. and they place it on the coffin or they take the flowers up and they're there in a colorful outfit I mean that's the other part a lot of these uh, funerals now that I'm seeing in Australia are less about the the ritual and the and the and the bereavement side and more about the celebration of life and if it's a funeral like 
like that, I think then the, the kids are part of it and they seem to be able to adjust quite well. And if they're crying and they're upset, then that's okay because they're, they're saying goodbye and that's part of the journey. I attended one funeral where the grandchildren had decorated the coffin and it was just beautiful. Uh, and so then your, uh, did you know that you wanted to go into your current role in change management as you, uh, as you went to university? Uh, no, when I started university I was actually originally focused on tourism because I love travel. Mm. And then I realised that I would be, I'd make a better traveller than I would someone managing tourism. I, I want to be on holidays. I don't want to be planning someone else's. So I actually changed into human resource management. And of course, from there, there's a lot of org design. There's a lot of change around uh, people's roles. And I was very, very interested in people leadership and very interested in, in, in those sorts of roles. And in any role I've done, I've always gravitated to ensuring that people adjust to change. And when I went to the UK, I actually uh, got my first sort of roles in project management. And from there, I did a lot of transition. So we were transitioning uh, organisations and bringing people across to a new way of working. And I got very involved with my HR experience as well. Got very involved in making sure that um, the focus was on people, process, uh, systems, not systems, process, people. So I always put the people first. Because if you can't get people to adapt to change, and, and, and find a way of adapting, then you don't win. You don't, that's, that's, that's where the mm. investment should be. So no, and it's just kind of been a natural um, gravitation. And whilst I've been now doing change and project and transition work for several years, I like the fact that each project is different, each team I work with is different, and that's where I get my um, energy from, I think. Were you working in change management when you were over in the UK and Ireland as well? Yeah, yes, I did. I actually, I worked for a company called Capita right. and they do a lot of um, process outsourcing arrangements. So one of the things they had done when I was there was they'd bought uh, Prudential Insurance in Ireland and I actually went over there to um, adjust the, the workplace to now be working. It's an interesting scenario. You've got a, a company based in Dublin now working for an English-based company. So they sent an Australian over, obviously, um, to help with that. But it was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful way of learning about the differences and the nuances in the Irish culture versus the UK mm. culture, because they are slightly different. They both have great sense of humour, by the way, but the, the, they are, they are um, a little bit different. And part of my role there was to um, find out how they currently operated. So you always have to understand how people are currently doing things and then work out how we can improve them but acknowledging that there is a reason why you did things that way in the mm, first place and mm. this is the reason why we're going to change it. Uh, and you were telling me before that you attended a funeral when you were in Ireland of, of your cousin. Uh, yeah. How do the Irish do funerals differently from Australians? Well, I, I had, as I said, I'd never um, been to a funeral outside of Australia and uh, unfortunately my cousin um, died very tragically at the age of 28. Um, he had a bleed on the brain and the funeral was in Northern Ireland in February and it was an incredibly bleak, cold, wintry day. Uh, first thing I noticed that uh, everyone's still very traditional in, in, in the way they dress and there's definitely a protocol that, that happens at funerals that I, was, I wasn't aware of until I experienced it. So the, the first thing I experienced was an open coffin and I do have to call out, because I do say in my, in my TED talk that I do use a bit of humour 
Um, and one of the things that my family are very, are very, I think they're very funny, but they've got a lot of black humour in the family, that real dark sense of humour. So I've, I've come in and I've sat down with relatives I, I haven't seen very often in my life and I do feel a little bit out of my comfort zone. I'm not there with my own immediate family, but mm. I'm there with my greater family, cousins, aunts and so forth. And there's an open coffin and there's my cousin that I uh, see and I hadn't seen him for a couple of years and it, it kind of was very confronting. And my great aunt was sitting in the, the row ahead of me and she turned around and she said, with, I won't use the accent because it'll upset people, but she said it with a Northern Irish accent. She goes, you've got the same nose. And it, it's, you don't know how to react to that. I'm at, I'm at a funeral and she's making a joke about the fact that my cousin and I have the family nose. Yes. And uh, it was hard to watch. One of the things that I saw was my aunt um, had to close the, the, the coffin lid and it broke my heart to see her do that. And then afterwards, there is a procession where um, family members um, carry the coffin down the road. And basically, you walk out of a chapel carrying the coffin. And everyone on the street stops, all the cars stop, everyone stops and pays respects. And it's silent. It's just completely mm. silent. And then we had a, a graveside um, burial as well. And my cousin was a, a piper. He played the bagpipes. And his mate went and stood up on a hill. And of course, it was, like I said, it was a rainy, misty day. Yes. And you could barely see him through the mist, but um, his mate stood up there and played Amazing Grace with bagpipes. And it was just so emotive and emotional. And then afterwards, of course, there was the wake where um, you will, you, you go back and you have a lot of tea, um, a lot of tea drinking and a lot of biscuits mm. and a lot of uh, cake and so forth. But I will call out at that funeral, we actually had uh, a family, because, because a lot of the family had got together and we don't see each other very often, my cousins and I were actually staying at a youth hostel while my aunts were staying with my other aunt. But because of room, we, uh, or lack of room in some of the houses, we all stayed in a youth hostel. Mm. And we'd gone out to a pub the night before and ended up in a lock-in. So uh, a lock-in is obviously where they, after, like, they have lockout laws, so you, but you can stay in as long as you, you yes. don't leave. Uh, and I don't recall buying a drink that night. It was like the whole town uh, knew we were there for a funeral. Mm. They knew that I was over from Australia, even though I was living in the UK at the time. And the community just, you know, are there and they're celebrating his life. And it kind of felt a bit backwards because we did it the night before, but it yes. was happened yes. organically. And it actually was a really great night to celebrate. And then, of course, the next day was, was quite a... Um, a tough day and I'll, I'll never I just really feel for my aunt that day how hard and my uncle how hard it was for them mm. um, to, I think to bury bury their son who was yes. only 28 but at the same time it was I could tell that everyone who was there knew knew the knew the protocol knew the ritual and they were a lot more comfortable with it than I was and I did get home and call my dad and say, you didn't tell me there were these things that I had to know about. And he, he kind of went, he'd been living in Australia for so long, he'd forgotten himself, so. Yes. Uh, and then fast forward to your father's passing. Uh, how, did, uh, how did he first fall ill? Uh, my dad was diagnosed at the age of 70 with pulmonary fibrosis, uh, which is a lung disease where your lungs waste away um, over a period of time. Uh, so we knew for he, he he then lived until he was 79, so he, nine years um, mm. later, and at that time we were were kind of given a time frame of around five years. I was now living back in Australia, and I had been living up in Queensland, and decided that I would do one last big trip and then come home and be closer to mm. my family. Mm. 
So I moved back to the Central Coast and, and then started working uh, at Westpac in, in Sydney. And he was pretty good for, for five years. There, were, there was obvious signs of deterioration and it was probably in the last two years of his life that it became quite significant. But he was also at that point 77, so he was slowing down anyway. But you could tell from his breathing um, that things were changing. But he was always very optimistic. He never complained and he took everything in his stride. So we did have a really great, you know, uh, you know nine, nine additional years with mm. him. And on reflection, we're, we're quite fortunate. He, he, he significantly deteriorated in the December and he passed away in the February. So we had two months of him going downhill quite rapidly where he then ended up on oxygen. And for anyone who's dealt with a family member or loved one going through palliative care, I'm, I, I kind of feel blessed that it was short mm. in, in, in what it could have been. So between December and February, he ended up in hospital four times. He had a great lung specialist, uh, but he was at a point now where they, they said, look, we've tried every everything to, to stop its progression and we're now hit that point of no return. So it's imminent, but mm. they can't, it's such a unknown path. They don't know whether the heart's gonna give out first. They don't know how it's gonna go, whether it's gonna go rapidly. They couldn't really give us a, a view of how yes. this was going to be. So dad was really clear that we, we had a lot of conversation around it and he, he wanted to be at home. He really did. So on the, the third time he, or the last time he left the hospital, uh, we had everything set in place. One of the things about pulmonary fibrosis is it's not necessarily painful like, a, like cancer, but you can't breathe. Mm. So it's a different kind of suffering. This is different, but it, it did mean that there were things we could put in place to have dad come at home with palliative care assistance and it did require obviously my mum my sister and I to be fairly involved in that as well but he desperately wanted he wanted a bit home yes. he did and I was now at a as an adult I was now at a much better place where I was comfortable with that I really understood it and I was I was better with that so he I remember when I when when he left hospital for the last time he was in a ward with other and he was in a lung patient ward and the woman across from him had terminal lung cancer. And, and she was suffering, like she really was suffering. And her family were there every day and every day the doctors were turning off for another test. And, and dad got wheeled out in a wheelchair. He said goodbye to everyone. And he went over to say goodbye to everyone. He goes, well, I'm out of here and I'm not coming back. And I don't know when I'll see you, but it won't be here. <laughs> and he said, I'm going home to die. I'm going home to die. And he was, and he was very, that, he was quite positive in how he was saying it. He knew. He knew what was happening. Mm. He was so happy to be getting out of there. And I, I just remember seeing the look on two of the other um, patients' faces and it was just pure envy. Mm. It, you know, they also knew that they didn't have long, but they were so envious that he was getting to go home. And it certainly gave me a different perspective on, on things. And, and of course, then um, when we had Dad at home, it was, it was a, a learning. Every day was a learning. We would have... We'd have, um, you'd have help that come in from Hammond Care that would actually help with things like uh, bathing him and dressing mm. him. He was now in a, an inflatable bed that actually, they've got this great bed now where it moves during the day so that um, you don't get bed sores. Oh, right. So it's a lot, a lot better set yeah. up. Um, we had do nurses coming to check medications. Um, eventually he ended up needing like an IV line in and mum and I were taught how to administer some pain relief medication on that. 
and obviously oxygen. He was hooked up to oxygen. So there's a few rules around um, the management of oxygen when you have it in your house. And, mm. and for us, between January and April, we have a lot of family birthdays and you can't have naked flame. So no candles on any birthday cakes. Right. Um, and I do recall um, someone giving me advice that when, when dad passes, you know, you might want to light a candle. And I'm like, can't do that. There's oxygen in the house. We're going to blow the whole house up. So um, just things you don't expect you're going to learn about. Mm, mm. Uh, so, yeah, having him home was it, was, it got intense in the end. Uh, but I will say even for us, it did mean that if we did go to sleep, we could go into our bed sleep for a few hours, do a little bit of rotation shifts. You could make your own cup of tea at home. Yes. You could sit with dad and watch TV. Uh, he was still himself way up, to, right up to the end. He was still, you know, the man I, I loved and respected and he still had his humour to the very end. And he was quite, um, we did have a couple of palliative care nurses come to his funeral who just, they, he, they, he obviously got under their skin a little bit and they were just, you know, they really enjoyed their time spent with him. Mm. So it was wonderful in that sense. Do you think of him as having had a good death? I do, and I didn't know that at the time. And it's only when I've spoken to other people and realised what we were able to give Dad. And I, I strongly believe he he went out on his own terms. He he told us what he wanted. Everything he asked for, we were able to support. And even helping my mum deal with her grief it's been good to be able to explain to her that, Mum, you know, we can't stop the fact that someone's going to die, but mm. in the big scheme of things, I, when I hear so many people talk about their regrets, yes. I wish I knew this, I wish I'd done that. There's nothing we wish that we would have done differently. We did everything that we could have done. And Tell me about some of those regrets. What do people sometimes tell you that they, they regretted about the death of their loved one? Uh, people... I've had a lot of people talk to me about this, so they, if they're listening, they might know who they are when I say some stuff, but I've got friends who regret not listening to their parents when they were trying to tell them while they were alive what they wanted, and they'd go, let's not talk about that now. So a lot of people who know that their, their death is imminent um, try and talk to their family around their wishes, and the family are so freaked out and, 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 and stressed by that that they don't listen. Mm. Not intentionally, but it's just too hard for them, so they then regret, I wish I knew if mum wanted to be buried or cremated, I wish I knew yes. if this is what she wanted. I, I, you know, I wish I asked more about you know, her upbringing. I wish I had more for the eulogy. There was lots of, um, I wish you know, that she'd, we'd sorted the will out. There's, a, there's actually a lot of legal and, and financial ramifications for not planning for and um, you know, uh, understanding that you, you, at some point you're gonna die and there's a legacy that you're gonna leave behind and mm. other people have to sort that out. But all in all, I think it's the the lost opportunity for a conversation. Did you record any of your dad's memories as, as part of those conversations? Or you just tried to hold them in your head as best oh, you could? Oh, look, I did. what was really fortunate for me was my, my dad passed away on the 27th of February and his birthday is the 27th of January. And what I decided to do for his birthday was I actually put him on the memory wall at the Maritime Museum because my dad is a migrant to Australia mm. who, who settled here. And in order to do that, um, I had to provide context of how he came to be in Australia. So I, under the guise of saying, Dad, I want to do this for your birthday, we actually sat down and, and he knew, he knew what it was really about, but, you know, 
Um, it just made it a lot easier to talk about, especially with the rest of the family as well, because it's not contrived, not sitting there going, right, Dad, I've got to document your whole life down now because we don't have much time. But I learned so many things. I'd learned he'd worked in a coal mine. I mean, I knew he'd been in the British Army um, and about his first experience in Australia. I mean, he arrived on the 15th of July and apparently it was a really, really cold day, but it was sunny. And he just walked out and went, oh, I've never seen sunshine like this in my life. And and the taxi driver said, um, where are you going? And he goes, oh, just take me to a pub. Um, I'm, I've migrated here. I don't know what my plans are. And the guy said, I have a cousin who runs a boarding house full of Irish people. I'll take you there. And then he got a job with Telecom um, at the time, which became Telstra. And, yeah, the, re the rest is history for him. Mm. But I learned so much and I was able to document um, on that. I actually, I will admit, though, in, the, in his last few days, there was a couple of little nuances or a couple of little conversations he had with me and I actually wrote them on my phone because I was quite sleep deprived at the time and I just wanted, I thought I might need to go back and just re-clarify what, what are some of the things yes. he said. And also, it's interesting time because he, he was at that point, you know, on, on pain medication such as morphine and I do know that it can change, you know, your perspective of how you see things but there were times when he just came out with some absolute clarity that mm. you can't, you know, you can't forego. But I uh, did, I think it's, it's, it is important to, you don't, you don't get a chance to go back and do it again. But more importantly, he was, he, he just, he was just himself so we still had a joke, we still had a laugh. It was probably a lot harder for my mum. Um, my dad kind of coped with it uh, and just accepted it. He was just mm. very accepting of it. How was the funeral? And more broadly, what to you makes a good funeral? Well, what we wanted, and I definitely had a lot of influence in this, with this obviously with my mum as well um, and my dad, we knew that he didn't particularly want a, a religious funeral. Um, we did say um, the, the, the Lord is my shepherd prayer um, for him and my cousin did that one. It was very much focused was a celebration of his life though. We wanted to make it a celebration of his life. So you wore colour. Uh, it was um, stories about him. We did the photo memory. And one thing that was very important to me, which is something I did pick up from my cousin's funeral that I realised was something that happened in Ireland, was that we were pallbearers and that we carried his coffin in and that family members have to do that. You mm. don't leave it up to the, um, the funeral people to do that. And we didn't bring it in on a trolley. You have to carry it in properly. Now, in Australia, under some of the laws, you can't put it over the shoulder anymore. Also, there was myself and a really good family friend. Um, so I had my nephews and I had a family member friend and my brother-in-law and my, um, my friend and I, uh, we, we carried the coffin. And I will admit, it's heavy. Mm. And my dad didn't have a lead line coffin, so this, this, this a standard coffin, it's heavy. And I do recall my ring on my finger got caught while we were standing outside and I had to let them take the load while I turned my ring around. And we all had a bit of a laugh about that at the moment, that don't you drop this, don't you, don't you drop this. Uh, but the music was important, getting the, the music right, getting the, the eulogy right, um, having a celebration and having a wake afterwards. Um, mm. We wanted people to come and, and feel that um, they were there to celebrate something and yes it's sad but think of what you've got from knowing him and something I would love to see more at funerals which I don't know if other people see this as appropriate but I've heard some absolutely fantastic eulogies where um, people's life stories are worth celebrating and I just want to applaud 
I just want to clap at the end and, and just mm. stand up and go, you know, I want to applaud the person. Um, but other people feel uncomfortable because it's not something we do. But I'd like to see a bit more of that. So we did what we... Dad, Dad wouldn't have wanted an over-the-top, overstated funeral. He was pretty low-key. So I'm pretty happy with the, the send-off we gave him. And, yeah, uh, and then a few months later, we, uh, he, he wanted to have um, be cremated and have his ashes be interned. So we, we had a little ceremony at the plot for that as well, just with the immediate family, and, and it, was, it was quite lovely. So I have, I have been to a funeral um, just after my dad's. I went, I went to quite a few in a quick succession, and mm. he was a friend of mine. He was 52, and he, he got off at a shot of Uzo. Now, I was thinking at the time, oh, my car's here, I've got to drive. I just, you know, I don't know about this. But then I went, oh, I feel a bit inappropriate, you know, drinking ouzo. Then I went, what would David want? What would he have wanted? He would have wanted me to do this. So I absolutely, you know, had the shot. Yes. I, so now when I'm at, one of the things I try and do is I go, what would this person want? What would they want? And that's what I try and adapt yes, to. Yes, that's just, a good just, stand. About you, it's not me. Yeah. So let's go with what you want. And doing a eulogy well, I think, is, uh, is deeply difficult. I... Um, gave a eulogy for my friend Andrew McIntosh when I was uh, 22 and uh, thinking back into, 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 that, into that experience and what it was to speak about him, um, I don't think I was very well prepared at all. Um, my kind of two tips for people preparing eulogies are uh, firstly to write it out and give it to some people because we have such a tendency to reach for cliches in the face of grief that you need help from others in stripping out the cliches and finding fresh language to talk about this person. Uh, and the other is to, to find a line that makes you cry and then say it 20 times until it doesn't make you cry, it just makes everybody else cry. Um, because while it doesn't hurt to tear up, sometimes tearing up can, can stop you from, uh, from delivering the, uh, the eulogy. But you've been to more funerals than me. You must have other tips for people who are preparing eulogies. Um, well, I, my dad's was the first eulogy, and I hope, I hope I never have to write too many, to be honest, but uh, it was the first one I'd ever delivered, but I had the ones that resonate the most with me, because let's face it, it is public speaking. Um, people are listening intently to what you're mm. saying. No pressure on that, because you're also grieving. But the ones that resonate me the most are the ones where they're the most genuine. They've got, there's integrity behind that. So I've some of the best ones I've heard is where I've got some friends who've done the eulogy for their fathers and they haven't had a close relationship with their father. Mm. And they've drawn from other people's experiences and relationships, but they're also true to themselves. Without, they're obviously not up there to, to you know to say that my father wasn't a great man, but they're they're honest in in their eulogies, and they're the most emotive for me when I hear them, because they're just so truthful. When I did my my dad's, um, I asked my family to to contribute. You know, my nieces, nephews, my sister, my mum, and nobody could. They just leave it up to me. You're the you're the one who can write stuff. You're the storyteller. You do it. So I was a lot of a lot of pressure. So I tried to. It can't just be from one person's perspective. So mm. I had there was a celebrant. So I gave him the chronological order of of, um, of of dad's life, and I just did the personal component. And I had a friend staying with me, and. I was very involved in a lot of the preparations for your funeral, so of course the the eulogy didn't get written till the night before it was started. But it's also I'm a project manager, 
So in the final few days of my dad's life, I was aware that I was going to have to do this stuff, but I could not. I could not start a eulogy while my dad was alive. Just couldn't do it. Just, just didn't feel right on any level. And then the next three days, I had to prioritise what things have to get done. Yes. And then obviously, the eulogy was the last thing because it's all on me. Um, I did have the celebrant breathing down my neck saying they needed a copy of it. And I was like, just someone back that. Just don't. I'm not. Someone take the calls for me because I'm not answering the phone. So I think I finished it around 2 a.m. And my friend, she's staying at my house and she just, she just, I think she ended up falling asleep on the lounge, but I basically came out and I read it to her and then I gave it to her. The first version I, I gave to her to read and she just came out to me and she said, oh, there's a couple of things in here that might trigger some different emotions for different people. So maybe not those things. So I tweaked it a little bit and then I came out and I read it to her at two o'clock in the morning and she started crying and she went, yeah, that's it. Leave mm. it at that. And I was conscious if I let too many people then read it, they'd, they'd change it on me and then it'd become too hard for me to deliver. Mm. But you're right, part of it, part of my eulogy, I talk about how my, at this beginning, I talk about how my dad was our, um, how, like our rudder of the family. My mum's the captain, but my dad's the rudder and we feel like we're just a little bit out, lost at sea at the moment. And I was also conscious that I know from previous experience that when I've, been at a funeral where someone's about to go and do a eulogy I burst into tears on their behalf mm. and they have to walk away from and I feel terrible because I'd like yeah because they're like I can't be around you Michelle because you're just gonna cry so I had to be away from everybody else as well I had to then isolate myself so at the funeral I went into the little chapel on my own and let my family deal with everything else at that point because I just had to stay focused until yes. I could deliver that um, and try not to make eye contact with too many people. But I, it was important that I had a bit of humour in there uh, because that brings me back. Uh, and it's also dad, you know, my dad. Um, and, and my mum doesn't have the same sense of humour as my dad is and she can't deliver the same humour that he can, but she understood it and mm. she appreciated it. So it was about um, making sure that she, you know, she got a bit of that lightheartedness in there as well. So, but you, you're right. And I think... I don't know for you, at 22, how many eulogies had you heard to know how to do it? Yes, not many at all. I suspect I was probably modelling off four weddings and a funeral and, uh, <laughs> and that's, that, that's about it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting too how uh, effective it can be if you're uh, choking up to push your tongue hard against the roof of your mouth to, uh, to, to just, uh, just stop yourself crying and get through. And I think something also, if, if you do your eulogy and, and you do cry, it's okay Yes. Just pause. Yes. They'll wait. Everyone will wait for you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's not a... I don't know, there's, there's a whole sort of thing there about blokes don't cry. Um, that I don't think is an issue, but at a certain point you want to be able to hold it together enough for the, uh, for, to, to do right by the person there. Um, there's also other roles too. One of my uh, friends in politics argues that uh, uh, every political funeral should come with a denunciator in chief uh, whose role is simply to stand up and to denounce the enemies of the deceased. Um, I'm not sure I, uh, I agree with him on, uh, on this, although I think it's an interesting notion, but are there other um, roles that you've seen played effectively at funerals? Uh, Poetry, music, are there, are there other things that, that we ought to be inclu including? Yeah, I th oh, look, if, if, if you're someone who loves music and you're someone who loves art and poetry, then have, it, have whatever, you, whatever was you, whatever mm. resonates with you. If you love flowers, um, you know, have lots of flowers. Whatever, what, I just think whatever. I think one thing that's really important is that if you're, 
if you're someone delivering a eulogy or you're, you're, you've got to have support people there. You've got, mm. to have, you've got to have those people. And sometimes those people's role is to keep other people away from you because yes. there's always some relative who's just overdramatic and over the top that you just can't deal with in that moment. And yes. you, need those, you need those buffers. They're like your bodyguards. You need the bodyguards to sort of um, just keep you away for the moment so you can get through what you need to do. But I really think, you know, whatever rocks your boat, whatever is important to you... Um, you should have it and do it. So, And more broadly, what should we say to somebody who's just lost a parent? How do we deal with that? Uh, I think this is, this, is a, this is a probably a really good area where we're not experienced and I don't think we have a lot of role models because no one taught us how to behave around other people who are grieving. And we, we're in a society that tells us we're supposed to be striving to be happy all the time. Mm, mm. And it's not... Po- and grief, it's part of life. Grief is a result of love you know it's it's a loss of love and it's normal and the sun doesn't shine all the time but we try and fix it rather than just be next to it and be with it and it was very important that I had that in my talk as well around acknowledging that we can come out with some absolute clangers of things that we say that we always walk away regretting we've said my mum heard a few I've said a few we've all heard them we've all said them and I, I, I've learned that... I've, I've had worse. Don't worry. You'll get over it. If you're going to start the sentence with at least, stop. Stop speaking at that point because you're not helping. There's nothing you're going to say at that point. And I, I actually included it in my talk uh, and it's something that I said now I, at the time. So my colleague, I, in my team at work, we lost five parents in a really quick succession and one of my colleagues lost two of his parents, both parents, in eight weeks apart. And we kind of went to each other's family, parents' funerals as yes. well. So uh, one of my team members lost her mum a week to the day after my dad. So I went to my dad's funeral on a Thursday, which was celebration of life. Then I went to a traditional Greek Orthodox funeral the week later, which is very, very different experience. But mm. that's what she would have wanted and that's okay, but very different. Yes. And prior to us both losing our parents, we were both very aware it was imminent. And uh, she also had a father with, with dementia in a nursing home and her mum was in, in the nursing home and, and having she had to go back and forth from hospitals. And one of the biggest stresses, if you're dealing with anyone, is, is, is hospital car parking situations and paying for hospital car parking and finding a spot. And we, we'd always resonated about this fact that, you know, it was such a frustrating component. And, mm. of course, after we both lost our parents, we were having this conversation. And I, and I said, oh, at least you don't have to pay for hospital parking anymore, which we laughed about. it. Cause we, but I went, that just came out and I shouldn't have. Like, it, I, she didn't mind, but that could have come out with anyone. I could have said that to anyone in that moment. And I heard it. I said at least as well. Uh, my my mum had some examples. She had a neighbour who avoided her for four months, and then and then came over and said, "Well, at least you got your girls and your memories." What what? Well, that doesn't help, you know. Mm. She's just lost a partner of fifty years. So uh, you can ask, you know, I'm thinking of you. Is there anything that I can I can do for you right now? I'm here for you. you I think it's okay to. Depending on the person, how are you? How are? It's just a natural thing to say. Yes. Um, it's okay to ask. You know, how are you? But be prepared to listen as well. You can't just dismiss it. Whatever they say back, you then have to invest a little bit into into that. Sometimes you don't have to say anything. One one thing I've learned is if um, you're you're dealing with a, a friend or a loved one who is grieving, 
and they were someone who was very affectionate and tactile, then hug them. If they were never someone who was hugging you, if, they were, if you've never hugged this person, now's not the time to start unless they've instigated that because it's just awkward. They're, they're awkward. It's not a natural thing to do. So try and be as natural as possible. Um, one of the, the best memories I actually have in that moment, um, just while we were doing the palliative care for with my dad, we, we, you know, our days were just so intense and, and, and unpredictable. And we get to the end of the day and there'd be nothing to eat. And I, mm. I talk about the fact I'm always hungry. So it, no matter how much I'm grieving, I'm still hungry. So mum, not so much, but I was like, well, what are we having to eat? And I'd say, where are the people with the food? Where, where are these people who are supposed to turn up with food? I thought that's what happened. But, um, and the day after my dad died, um, there was a knock at the door at 8 o'clock in the morning and one of my close friends stood there with a lasagna and she didn't really say anything. She was crying and she just handed it to me. And we had that as our family uh, meal that day. And it was the best moment for me. It was like nice. someone heard me, you know, someone heard my pleas for someone bring me a lasagna. And down the, a few, you know, months later, one of the things that resonates me with about that is uh, she didn't go and cook that that night. She had actually cooked that for her family, heard that my dad had died, took it out of the fridge that morning, drove it. She was living in Sydney, drove it to, to Wurwe and handed it to us. Um, and I always get a little bit of joy out of the fact that her husband would have gone to that fridge that night expecting to eat a lasagna that wasn't there. <laughs> so um, there's those little things. So if, yeah. if you're not that person who is good at words, do the action bit. You know, it's, please bring the food. Everyone should bring the food. I think mm. the food's still, it's a lost art we have in this country. I don't know where we've lost it. I, I believe it used to be there. We need to get back to it. A good friend of our family, uh, Mary Mortimer, after she'd lost two husbands, uh, wrote a book called When Your Partner Dies. And one of the things I learned from that was that it is always okay to uh, bring up the loss of uh, a parent or a child with someone. You don't need to think that you will remind them of something they weren't thinking about already, um, that not, uh, for somebody who has, who has lost a, a parent or a child, uh, there's not an hour of a day that's going by where they're not already thinking of that person, and, yep. and it, is, it is okay to, uh, to, to bring that topic up. Uh, do you, did, you did you find it's, that there was a cycle of grief afterwards, and that there was a moment in which you really needed people where uh, the, the support wasn't there as much. Some people say that comes after, after a few months when a lot of people just step back from, from the caring of the, of the bereaved. Yeah, I, it's different. For, I think the, the challenge with grief is, I know they talk about the cycles of grief, but not everybody's going through it in the same order. So mm. someone's still in denial or someone's angry and someone's moved on from that. So yeah, the, part of the challenge is the family dynamic we can, is completely disrupted by the way everyone is individually handling grief. And when you're, when you're dealing with grief, you're very introspective and you're not really aware of, it's all about you, it's all mm. about how you're feeling. Mm. So it's very, very hard to, um, to support others. For me, I, uh, my biggest challenge was, as soon as I, I was doing the palliative care and then as soon as dad passed, I was straight into the planning for the funeral. And then I had to go back to work and then I didn't have to go back to work. It was I'd had enough. Time. I'd had plenty. work had been very supportive of me um, taking time off to, to do palliative care, which is a wonderful opportunity to be given and, and, and without guilt. You know, mm. without being able to do that without guilt. But I just felt that now like, I've got to get back into the swing of things, and I just really wasn't. 
necessarily there. So I might be at work and just burst into tears over something unrelated, but aware that it probably was to do with my dad, but I, I couldn't make that connection. Yes. And I just, quite a bit of emptiness. And part of my struggle, I think, was my relationship with my mum changed significantly because she was grieving. So she's always been the rock you go to for support, but she can't be that right now. Mm. So I relied a lot more on friends um, to be to be there for me um, and you never know who 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 it's going to be that's the other thing you have expectations about who you think is going to be there for you but it's it doesn't matter who it ends up being as long as it's someone mm. and one of the reasons why I've been to a few more funerals in the last few years is I've, I've been to funerals of friends parents who I might not have really known that well but I'm not there for them I'm there for my friend just yes. to let them know I'm here for you and I do recall when I was doing my dad's eulogy, looking up and seeing a lot of people there, my work colleagues, my team, my boss, everyone there, just to, just for there for me. And it just gives you strength. But very, very important is that it's once the funeral's over, everyone goes back to their lives, but that's when the real adjustment yes. begins. Yeah. And we need to be um, checking out, checking in, calling in for a cup of tea, whatever it is. Do what you normally do. Mm. That's the thing. I think just don't try and be something different and you know if if this you know invite them out for whatever you did um if they say no they say no call in and check on them you know drop in there occasionally uh but also like i said everyone's journey is is what it is and you just have to sometimes understand that it's a lot harder to support someone who's angry you do have to back away a little bit if you're dealing with that um we have to get better at sitting and listening not we, we don't we don't have to speak there's nothing mm. there's absolutely no words of wisdom that we're going to going to change anything of for, you know to make anything go away and feel better it's just being there that's what it's about you spoke before about a range of the important conversations we need to have before someone dies uh one of the other things that you've highlighted in your public uh, conversations around this issue is uh, living wills what is a living will and why should we think about it uh, well, firstly, a living will is around making sure that while you're alive, you have all your financial... When people used to talk about having your affairs in order, but no one ever tells you what that is. Mm. And one of the biggest changes probably in the last 20 years is our digital footprint, uh, the fact that we have social media accounts, the fact that you know we, we have very complex financial um, situations if you're, if you're married and you have children, it's absolutely prevalent that you do have a will. Uh, I, I actually did a lot of research to find out what happens if you don't. Uh, a lot of people are put off by having a will uh, around the fact that they've heard other people say, well, someone contested it and and they won anyway, so what's the point? Oh, it was a huge point because the government um, intervenes and uh, I, that one of the lines I do say in my TED talk is where else in your life do you give money to the government where you don't need to? And that's what you'll be doing. Uh, there'll be a delay. The, the money may end up where it's supposed to end up, but it, it's you're actually putting a significant burden on your family and your loved ones if you don't take care of these these things. And a, a living will is also more about understanding and having those conversations around um, what what your wishes are. Mm. You know, what how how do you want your your, your body to be treated? What sort of ceremony do you want? Um, are all your legal things in place? Does your partner know where everything? Do people have passwords to your social media accounts? Whatever it is that, and it's, and it's as important for single people as well. Um, 
uh, I'm single and I, and I have a will. Um, I've had a will for, for many years and I just feel there's a, that I, it's just a safekeeping for me to know that you know, I've got things in place. I'm also a project manager, so I was always going to be very organised and, and have these things in place. Uh, but even through through me doing my talk, even my own family, I have two nephews and two nieces, and I discovered one of my nephews absolutely does not want to be cremated. And we did not, we would not have known that mm. had mm. we not had this conversation. We would have just assumed we would do it. Everything would, everyone would be going the same way because that's just yes. you know. So it is important, and, and he's 24, so and he's very adamant about this. So you have to have, you have to know. And if anything should happen, we at least would get some comfort of knowing. Well, we got that right. Uh, so it's um, it's very important just to have uh, have these things in place. If you are, and I've talked about this in my workplace as well, because obviously I work in a bank and we understand when people go under financial hardship as a result of losing someone, because sometimes accounts are frozen. Mm. If you don't have a joint account, your accounts can be frozen. And I use the experience of my mum, who largely my parents had their affairs in order, but she still had to ring up all the utility companies and provide the death certificates and have his name removed. And she she learnt that she was the she was the secondary card holder on a credit card, and the, and the story behind this one is um, they'd had this credit card for about twenty years. My dad wouldn't have even known where his one was. Like he never used it. It was uh-huh. mum who did. Mum mum used it. Mum spent the money. Mum paid the bill. So she's gone into the. I, I got her to um, make sure she went in and told the banks what was happening. And she went in and, and told the bank, and it wasn't the one I work for. So that's all we need to know. Uh, she uh, went in and told the bank that um, uh, my, my husband's passed away, and I need to have this transferred into my name. And they cut it up in front of her. It's extraordinary. Very, very harshly done, I will say. And I would say that that's when my mum's grief turned into anger in that moment. That's yes. where it shifted. It absolutely shifted because she felt completely uh, non-existent as a human in that moment. Mm. So I'm, I'm invalidated as a human because not only am I grieving my husband, but you've just told me that without him, I'm nothing. And it could have obviously been handled a lot better. Uh, so one of the things that I've been working with is to ensure that we improve the way we deal with um, bereaved um, mm, customers mm. And, and also trying to get the message out there to loved ones who are supporting family members going through this because it's going to be the support people who need to know some of this stuff. So it's important that they, they know to make sure some of these things are in place. So if you are a secondary card holder and the primary card holder does pass away, then that card is no longer... Um, for, and that's for, that's for obviously um, data integrity and for ensuring the identity of the person isn't compromised in any way. There are, there are legitimate reasons why these things are in place and I understand those. But I work in a bank so of course I understand them. But the average person doesn't understand why yes. suddenly. And it could have been handled a lot differently and I'm hoping that we are getting the message out there around how we change some of the way we handle handle this yeah so a living will then encapsulates a whole lot more than the financials a whole lot about uh, how how you want to end your life and, and what you yeah what it can include also with. like an advanced care directive as it's called yes. a lot of people have these now particularly if they are living with a terminal illness um, it's around how you want your end of life care plan mm. plan to be um, 
I have I have an endure, I have enduring guardianship, and I have power of attorney um, on myself to make sure that my family can make decisions about my should anything happen to me, they can make decisions yes. about my health, and they also can act on my financial behalf. Uh, a lot of these things, people just assume it's just the will, but there are a few more that need to be in place. Um, but yeah, the advanced care directive is a good one for really getting to understand what a, how someone wants to be um, managed in their end of care, um, end of stage care. Mm. Michelle, we're coming to the end of our conversation. What advice would you give to your teenage self? I believe we're born with instincts, um, these gut instincts and intuition. And when we are teenagers, they're there. They're, they're always with us, but we just don't trust them yet. We don't know that we should be trusting them. And if I could give advice, it would be to, to say, that's, they're there for you. They're there for you to use wisely. They're there for you to use for, for good. And um, they're there to protect you. So trust them. Trust them. You're right to trust them, no matter what anyone else is telling you that because it will grow and as you get older you do start trusting it more but if you knew that as a teenager maybe you maybe it would be you'd have I think you'd have more confidence mm. in yourself and the decisions you make what's something you used to believe but no longer do I used to believe that everything in life is about you know finding happiness and um, that you everyone followed a set path that you you went to school you got a job you got married you had kids you retired um, everyone's path is different uh, and that the this desire to achieve happiness could it, it really is just about a state of mind so stop looking for tangible things that are that are going to be making you happy just so I stopped, uh, yeah, I, uh, happiness just comes from a state of mind shift. But you're also not meant to be happy all the time. It's okay, mm. uh, so, and grief's part of that. That doesn't mean you should be sad and miserable your whole life. It is also the state of mind, but I just think there's a few things in there that we're sold on this, this promise of this magical life that the reality is far different. I mean, if you've watched Game of Thrones, you know what I'm talking about. When are you most happy or, or perhaps satisfied, uh, we should say, in, in light of what you've just, uh, just mentioned? Oh, when I'm travelling. I'm an avid traveller. I love travelling. I, I, I get a lot of energy when I'm travelling. I think trying anything new, being in a new culture, being so in a new place. So is it when you first land, when you get, get off the aeroplane? What's the moment of the trip? Oh, I think you, it's when I pass through immigration um, at the airport and, I'm in, and you're in no man's land. From then on in, I'm all good. Uh, no, it's probably watching a sunset in a foreign country, being up yes. a mountain, eating a meal with totals, having these random encounters with people and having a good laugh that you didn't know were going to happen. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? I, I don't think it can be understated enough that exercise is, is good for both. Um, mental health is as, as important as physical health and I think it's very much in the limelight now that we should be very aware of that. So to, to, to add the balance, I mean, I, I do enjoy a glass of wine and a gin and I will say that I understand that alcohol can have a detrimental impact on my physical health but for me it's the balance of my mental health benefits from it so as long as you do everything in moderation and mm. one thing I, I think I do now I, I, I live such a busy hectic life I commute three hours a day I'm on a, such a tight time schedule from the time I get up to the time I get home that I, I try and listen to the birds it's weird but it just 
connects you back with nature for a moment and reminds you that there's bigger things out there and I think it's a bit relaxing. So if you get a chance, do that. Three hours of daily, daily commuting is yes. massive. How yes. do you productively use that, that time? Because I mean, I think we had some pretty systematic studies that people tend to be much less happier, less happy when they have long commutes. I'm very fortunate that I have flexible working, so I do work from home one day a week, and I usually choose a Wednesday, and that just makes that actually makes a huge difference. Um, I do a lot of reading. Um, I will say, of late, I've been watching a bit too much Netflix on the train, um, as, as is everyone else around me. But reading, um, I've done study in the past. I'm always planning the next holiday. Mm. Um, occasionally, I'll be asleep. Uh, but generally, um, I also go to the gym before I get on the train of the morning. So it's yeah, it makes for a busy day. It's harder in winter because it's dark yes. you know, when you get yes. on the train, and it's dark when you get off the train. But and you're, I take it you're still on the central coast. Then? I am. I yes. still live at Yamina, Yamina right. Woi area. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, I always think of Woi Woi from uh, Spike Milligan's uh, references that no one in Britain believed it was a real place. Yes. Uh, and finally, Michelle, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I definitely think uh, I've had great foundation from my parents, both of them. Um, my dad probably has had the the more verbal pearls of wisdom over the years where my mum probably led a little bit more by example, but... They've both given me a wonderful foundation, but in um, through travel, I've met I've met some really interesting people who've experienced some major adversity. I, I remember travelling in Cambodia, and I went to the killing fields, and I had a guide there who was the same age as me, and he lost his father and two siblings. Um, we went to the prison where a lot of people were interned, and. and absolutely tortured and there were photos of um, some of these officials on the and they all had their eyes scratched out and I was asking him about that and he said well you know some of these people were still this was 2006 but some of these people still alive mm. who perpetrated these crimes and he said that his teaching from his father was um, if I was to seek revenge and kill this man just to revenge my father then I would end up in jail and I'd spend my life in prison and my mum and my surviving sister would still suffer. And what have I accomplished mm. other than I've achieved the same as him? So because of their Buddhist belief, they, you know, the karma, you've just taken the same negative karma that he has. So mm. the best way to combat that is to, is to, is to live and to, and to do the right thing and lead by example. And I think, you know, it was one of those random things that just resonated with me so much. And I've since studied Buddhism and um, I absolutely like the fact that you're entirely responsible for your own karmic journey and your decision making around that. And it just seems to resonate quite well with me to think that that's how you want to be. You want, you, your conscious makes you accountable. I have a strong conscious, so I, I'm very aware now of, you know, the path that is right and the path that is wrong and I make the conscious decision to choose to choose what I believe is the right path. Michelle Knox, uh, death expert and mortal realist, thanks very much for taking the time to speak on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week... I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.